Um, but um, he, he's been doing it for much longer. Um, he knows what he's doing. He's a, he's a much better um, pastor um, than I am, and I, I strive to, to be more like him. Um, so to, to get to listen to him my whole life and then to move away and not to get to listen to him anymore, um, you know, that's, that's, I miss it. So I'm as excited about getting to hear him as I'm excited about everything else get to hear him. So, Dad, it's, it really is. It's a blessing. Um, so I'm glad you're here. We love you. I'm excited. It's a pleasure to be here tonight and to be with y'all. I'm from the South, so I have to say y'all. And uh, what a joy to be in Queens, New York. I never thought I'd have a son who would be a pastor in Queens. And we just so appreciate, my wife and I do, uh, appreciate the fact that he has this opportunity. And y'all have the opportunity to build one another up in the faith and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So I, I bring you greetings from North Carolina, the Tar Heel State. We're just so glad to be with you, and uh, we look, look forward to finding out more about Queens and more about this church body, God willing, as the months and the years go by, but it's so good to be here this evening. But uh, let me pray, and we'll just get right into our uh, topic for tonight. Let's pray. Well, Father, we call on your name, the matchless name of the Trinity, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we thank you so much for all that you're doing among us, uh, that you're doing in this fellowship of your people, and that you're doing in the city of Queens and the city of New York and all the boroughs. And uh, we're just grateful to be part of the kingdom of God already, to be, see the life and power of God working in our lives and, and between us, between one another, and then uh, out into the cities and, and uh, buildings and streets and towns of this area around us. And so give us a vision for what you're doing. Help us grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and be involved and engaged in manifesting his name to the people around us. And I pray this message in some small way, Lord, would help that happen. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. I read recently the story of a, a woman who was a jet uh, pilot, and she was on high-speed maneuvers one day in bad weather. And she pulled back on the stick to go into a steep climb, and she crashed right into the ground because she didn't realize she had been flying upside down. you got to know whether you're flying right side up or upside down. It's kind of important. And the Bible was given to us by God so that we would know how to fly right side up. But often when we come to the Bible, we find things that seem to us at first to be upside down. Like the, the poor are rich, and the weak are strong, and the dead will live. Things like that. How can those things be? And the answer is, we have to see the greater perspective of the kingdom. And when we see the kingdom for what it really is, then we realize that everyone who comes into the kingdom of God, everyone who comes by faith in Christ, is turned right side up. And so the, the poor are rich, believing in Him. The dead will live, because He said, because I live, you shall live also. And the weak are strong in Him. And the meek do inherit. In him. Because the kingdom of God doesn't work like the kingdom of men. In the kingdom of men, only the rich inherit. And the kingdom of God, the poor, and everyone who trusts in him, inherit. And so God gave us the Bible to teach us how to fly 
right side up. But still, most people fly upside down. And one of the main ways they fly upside down is in their view of Jesus Christ. And one of the great all-time questions in history is, what do you think of Christ? What do you think of Christ? So this morning, we're going to look at a passage in the book of Isaiah that answers this this morning, this evening. I'm always preaching in the morning, so but this evening. You know how that is, Ed. I see you back there. <laughs> but this evening... We're going to look at a passage that looks at people who are viewing Jesus upside down, and then we want to make sure we're seeing him right side up, especially when it comes to him being our healer, our healer, the one who makes us whole through the cross and the resurrection. So we're going to learn from Isaiah 53. Let's turn in our Bibles there, and I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. I understand you use the ESV. It's pretty close. This is New American Standard. Now, before, we, before I read the, the text, let me set the context. So we're in the book of Isaiah. There's 66 chapters here. And about chapter 49 through 57, the theme is the suffering servant of Yahweh. That uh, Isaiah is forecasting a time 700 years down the road when this servant will come from God, his Messiah, and one of his uh, main, uh, one of the main things he does among us is suffer. And so he talks about the suffering servant. And our text comes right about in the middle of this theme. And we're going to look at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So let's look at that together. Isaiah says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is the arm of the Lord, grew up before him, that would be the Lord, like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, if you look at your outline, you'll notice I'm using the name Yahweh here. And the reason for that is uh, this passage here is bookended by the name Yahweh. When you see the word Lord in verse 1, L-O-R-D, all caps, and you see it again in verse 6 in the same way, that's always translating the name of Yahweh. It used to be translated Jehovah, but somewhere along the way people realize that's not the best translation of the word. The best translation is Yahweh. And so we're talking about the servant of Yahweh here. So, uh, I want to I just camp on that for a minute because the name Yahweh is so important for three reasons at least. First of all, it's God's covenant-keeping name. And so when we hear the word Yahweh or the name Yahweh, we know that God will keep His promises. He does not fail to keep His promises. Isn't that good to know in a world where so many people do? And uh, even our government at times doesn't keep its promises. But God keeps His promises. Secondly, it's His personal name. So it communicates that he wants to have a personal, intimate relationship with us. And thirdly, it's his Trinitarian name. 
It encompasses the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It communicates that God in himself is a community of loving persons, and he has drawn us into that community through Jesus Christ. Isn't that great news? You know, the best lovers ever in the history of the universe have been loving each other eternally, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now they say to us, come into the family. So you can experience that love and then transfer it to one another and to the world. That's tremendous news. So the name Yahweh is significant for those reasons. Now in Isaiah 53, we see that uh, most of Jesus' contemporaries saw him, as I say, upside down. But we want to see him and his suffering right side up. So that's what we're going to try to get at this morning, or this evening. And uh, to do that, I put three questions in your outline. The first one is this. Why so little acceptance of Yahweh's servant? Yahweh sent his servant into the world, and he is not accepted for the most part. Let's look again, uh, look again at 1 through 3. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, Isaiah is prophesying, and he's looking into the future, and he's telling us about the perspective of future Israel as they realize what they did to their Messiah. As we get into the passage, I want to point out that it's a passage of poetry and prophecy and pathos. Poetry, prophecy, pathos. Poetry in that it uses vivid language to engage our imagination. And you just see some of the words that are used here. That he was a tender shoot. He grew up out of parched ground. He was a man of sorrows. Imagine these things being said of God's Messiah. Why is the Bible so full of poetry? You ever wonder that? And the answer is because God's a communicator, and he communicates in all forms of human language. He invented it, right? So he can use anything he wants to, and he uses poetry to engage our imagination vividly, as prose never can. And so that's why so much of the Bible is written in poetry. The Psalms, the Song of Solomon, the Book of Job, much of the prophets come, come to us in poetic form. Secondly, this is a prophetic passage. And as you probably heard, uh, uh, prophecy both foretells and foretells. It foretells things about the future, but it foretells things that we need to know about God. And so it foretells a time we'll realize that they brutalized and crucified their own Messiah. What a shock. And it also foretells the loving heart of God for sinners. That God is all about restoration. He knows that we're in dire need of it. Uh, of it and so he has come in the person of his son to offer this to us that we might be restored fully and completely. Someone in this age fully in the age to come. So restoration is on the heart of God. And he's called us into fellowship with him. Through Christ. It's also a passage, <clears throat> a passage of pathos, which means it really gets to our heart. It stirs our emotions to see that the Lord Jesus would suffer so much for us, out of love for us, so that we, as we see what was fatal, fatal to us falling on Him. 
And so what I want to say to you tonight is let the poetry speak. Let it stir your imagination. And let the prophecy teach. And then let the pathos stir your heart to burn with affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's get into this a little more. Notice that it starts off with a question. <clears throat> Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah is saying this, I and other prophets have been speaking about the Messiah, but who has believed? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And, and when we answer that, we, we realize that when the Messiah actually came, very few people accepted him. Very few people wanted to uh, 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 um, uh, take him as he was. He did not appear to them to be the Messiah that God would send. And think about it, of the hundreds of thousands of people who lived in Israel at that time, when Jesus was crucified, buried, rose again, and ascended to heaven, how many people were left as followers of him? Well, we don't know exactly, but we do know that there were about 120 people waiting in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to come. 120. Maybe there were a few others scattered around Israel, but 120 people, let's just say 500,000 people lived in Israel at that time. 120 is way less than 1%. He was not accepted. He was not received. You ever had an experience where you, you thought you knew what someone would be like until you actually met them? We've all, we've all had that experience. When I first came to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, a long time ago, it was about 40 years ago, and there was a man I found out about who could just teach the Bible like crazy. It was wonderful. His name was Howard Hendricks. He used to teach at Dallas Theological Seminary. I, I didn't know who he was other than uh, as a young believer, I thought, this guy's so powerful. He preaches so well. He's got this big, booming voice. And I knew he was from Texas, so I thought he was about 6'4 and wore a cowboy hat. <laughs> Later, I met him. He was about 5'8 and bald. <laughs> and he wore these nerdy-looking glasses. <laughs> you can't be Howard Hendricks. Yes, that was Howard Hendricks. You ever had that experience? You thought you knew what someone would be like, and then you meet them? You can't be that person. Also, when I was a kid, there was a singing cowboy on television. His name was Fred Kirby. And one day he took off his cowboy hat and he was bald. I was so shocked. I was seven years old. I thought, he can't be bald. <laughs> I didn't know I'd be bald later. But that's another story. <clears throat> Just imagine the next mayor of Queens is elected from among the homeless. Would that be a surprise? Jesus is something, something like that. So how did he actually come? Look at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He's talking about his childhood. And he refers to the arm of Yahweh. Back in chapter two, uh, 52, verse 10, it says, The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So God has rolled up his sleeves and bared his arm. And when he bared his arm, guess what it looked like? It looked like the Messiah. It was the Messiah. It was Jesus. And so, but he grew up before God like a tender shoot. So we're seeing the, the perspective of, of God looking down into space and time and and seeing his son develop and grow like a tender shoot. Now, as I use that language, I want to interject something here. I want you to keep three images in your mind, if you would. A stump, like a tree stump, and a tree, and its fruit. So stump, 
tree fruit. And the reason that's important is because when God looks down and see his, sees his son growing up like a tender shoot, he's growing out of a stump. So what do you mean by that? Well, back in chapter 11, verse 1 of Isaiah talks about there will be a stump of Jesse. And out of that stump will come a shoot. Well, that's the Messiah. And what that means is the stump of Jesse is the line of David, the king. And the line has been cut down because of all the wickedness of the kings that followed. But it's a living stump, and out of that stump comes a shoot. And that shoot develops into a tree. And that tree is the Messiah. But at first, he was like a tender shoot. That was his childhood. And so, <clears throat> 700 years later, if you could look into the village of Nazareth, you would see a little boy running around with all the other little boys. He didn't look like much. He looked like all the other boys. But that was the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. Remember how Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Turned out it could. <laughs> In fact, the best thing ever came out of Nazareth. But he doesn't look like much at the time. Like a little shoot on a plant, the kind of thing you would snip off so the plant could grow. And that's exactly what the leaders of Israel did. They saw him, they said, let's cut him off so our nation won't be in peril. They didn't realize what they were doing. But they treated him that way. And it also says he grew up in a spiritual desert, like a root out of parched ground. And that's the way Israel was in those days when Jesus was born. And then it goes on, as he came into adulthood, he appeared to be common. Rest of verse 2. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Many of us are fascinated with all things British. I, I don't know if you are, I am. I, I, we, we watch things on television like Downton Abbey and uh, uh, The Paradise and things like that. We, we get fascinated with England and we get fascinated with their royalty. And what marks them is their pomp and their glory and their splendor. But Jesus had none of that. In first century Israel, if you had lined up Jesus with 50 other Jewish men, he would not have stood out. There was nothing fantastic about his appearance. He didn't have a Hollywood smile. He didn't have blue eyes. He didn't have wonderful hair. He just looked like a common, everyday Jewish man. Didn't look like a bodybuilder. Didn't look like an NBA player. But it gets worse, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. That's shocking to us, isn't it? Because we esteem Jesus so much. We realize what he's done for us. But so many of the people in that day, especially the leaders, saw him as hateful contemptible, one to be despised. We might say the Messiah became a pariah. Pariah means a hated man. So despised, viewed with contempt, forsaken. Remember, when they arrested him, they all left him and fled. No one stood with him at his trial. He was left to fend for himself completely. It goes on to say he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that's very significant for our thinking here this, this evening. Uh, sorrows literally means pains. A man of pains. It means Jesus was no stranger to hurt. 
just, just like we are. We've all been hurt. Jesus was no stranger to rejection, abuse, spitting, blows, shame, torment, and a brutal death on the cross. And he's a man of grief. That word literally is translated, uh, it literally means sickness. And although Jesus himself was never physically ill, we could say he made his living healing the sick. And so he was no stranger to the debilitating effects of disease. He knew what it was like himself to have a mortal body. And he experienced the failure of that body on the cross. Psalm 22 is prophetic of that. Some of the phrases from Psalm 22. I can count all my bones. Imagine Jesus stretched out on the cross looking down at himself. I can count all my bones. He said, my strength is dried up like a broken pottery. He said, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You ever been so dry that you couldn't, you couldn't get your mouth to work? That's not a good feeling. In fact, it makes me want to drink some water. <laughs> but the Lord knew those things. He experienced those things. He knows what it's like to have a mortal body in a fallen world. So he can identify with you and I. So he was despised and forsaken of men. He was loathsome. And at the end of the verse it says he was despised, the New Living Translation says he was despised and we did not care. So, why so little acceptance of Yahweh's servant? And the answer is, he didn't fit the bill. He wasn't what the people expected. He was too normal, too common, no pizzazz, no panache. And even worse, he was contemptible. At the end, he was an outcast. Well, the next question is, why such brutal uh, suffering for Yahweh's servant? That's verses 4 through 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Remember? Man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord, Yahweh, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Remember, we're looking at this from a standpoint of a shocking realization that Israel is realizing this was our Messiah. And now we get to the actual reason that he suffered in verse 4. And what Isaiah says is literally something like this. If you go back up to the second half of verse 3. Uh, like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Yet, in fact, it was our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Our griefs, our illnesses, our mortality, our sufferings, our sorrows, our pains, rejection, loneliness, being outcast, even tortured. I'm sure you all heard it in the news about Ten days ago, they discovered these women who'd been living in a house in London for 30 years had been abused and tortured. Did you see that in the news? And before that, there were the women in Cleveland who had been kidnapped and held for 10 years, tortured and abused. Jesus bore those griefs and those sorrows 
as well as the sins of the perpetrators. It's amazing. And so, I want to say to you on a personal note, this has been a very important verse for me because of something that happened to me about a year and a half ago. About a year and a half ago, I was hit by a train, not really, but I was hit by a train called Depression. Never thought coming, never thought it would happen to me in a thousand years. My mindset was, I can't get depressed. I'm a pastor. And yet it happened. I was severe depression, and I went way downhill. And God has brought me back through a healing path. He's used many people and many truths. But one of the main truths he's used is this one here. And I was at a conference uh, back in August in Black Mountain, North Carolina, on the, on the cross. And it just struck me as I was at that conference. I was out uh, one day, I was thinking about these things and walking through a forest and standing by a stream. And, and it just hit me that uh, the cross took place in history. But its effects transcend history. And so that means the cross has borne my griefs and my sorrows. And I can bring all the pains of my depression to the cross and experience the healing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here was a companion thought. God is not the author of evil, but he has allowed it and Christ has absorbed it on the cross so that he might overcome it with resurrection. And that has just given me such hope coming out of this time of depression. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Like the hymn says, hallelujah, what a Savior. Isn't that amazing? Mm. But Jesus' people were blind to this. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, John 1. And so we get the, the second half of verse uh, 4. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. It's the irony of ironies. Here's Jesus hanging on the cross, and the people around are looking at him for the most part and saying, he's there on the cross because he's cursed of God, smitten and afflicted because he's a sinner, and he gets, he's getting everything he deserves. What irony. They thought he was cursed of God. They thought he was suffering the wrath of God. And he was, but not for his sins, for ours. What a Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Love that hymn. Love that hymn. When St. Jerome came to this verse and translated the Latin Vulgate, he said, we saw him as a leper. A leper. Outcast. Cursed. After all, doesn't the word of God say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? Again, it's incredible irony. Verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. You see that? He was pierced. Our transgressions. He was crushed. Our iniquities. Chastening for our well-being fell on him. By his scourging, we are healed. See, we should have been receiving those things. Scourging, chastening, piercing. 
Those were our lot, but he took it upon himself. Yet all the time these people are saying, we saw him on the cross, we saw what happened to him, and we thought he was scum. We saw him under God's curse, but he was bringing us under God's blessing. You see, it's a classic case of biting the hand that feeds you. Jesus was reaching out to feed the people, and they were biting his hand. I think of the missionaries who went to Ecuador in 1956. Some of you have seen the story of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the others who uh, reached out to the Warani Indians. If you saw the movie, The End of the Spear, or maybe you've written, uh, read some of their books, or some of the books about them. And so they took the blessing of God and the gospel of God to these people, and for their troubles, what happened? They got speared to death because the Warani saw them as a threat. And so they bit the hand that reached out to feed them. Exactly the same thing happened between the people of Israel and Jesus Christ. Finally, Isaiah gives us a summary. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is Israel and, and, and our confession. We all walked away from God like straying sheep. Each of us turned to his own way, the way we thought best. Because that's the arrogance of spiritual blindness. But God did not let us stray far enough to come under the lightning bolt of his wrath. He dropped the nuclear bomb of our iniquities and our sins upon the Son of God. Woo! And when the dust cleared and the smoke cleared, who was dead? Not us, him. Who was judged? Not us, him. Who paid? Not us, him. Amazing. Amazing. 2 Corinthians 5 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Why such brutal suffering for Yahweh's servant? You could boil it down to one word love. Because love bears affliction, love restores. Isaiah 63 8 says, God bore all our sufferings. In all our affliction, he was afflicted. So Jesus bore our destruction so that we might receive his healing. In the most incredible surprise of human history, the brutal, bloody cross of Christ is a healing tree. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Remember our three words? Stump, tree, fruit. Out of the old stump of David's line comes this tender shoot. And this shoot grows up to become a tree, a crucified Savior. And the fruit of that tree is restoration, salvation, peace, glory. That's what we receive. By his scourging, we are healed. Love bears affliction. Love restores. Now, as we consider this, we come to our final question. How do we experience the healing of Yahweh's servant, the healing that he brings? So here we get down to the so what question. My wife's always asking me, says, you preach the Bible, so what? what? What do we do with it? How do we apply it? What do we, how do we walk in it in a, in a practical sense? So let's get down to the so what question. How do we receive the healing? And the first one 
The first way we receive it is this. We receive the healing of sin's guilt. Now in this group, probably most of us have done that. At some time in your past, you have realized what I'm saying is true. You've realized that the gospel is true. And God has opened your heart, as Matt talked about this morning, in order to believe. So, but it may be that one or two of you have not. Maybe that's never been totally clear to you, or maybe you've kind of postponed making that decision in your own life to trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So I want to give you the gospel in verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. You can personalize that for, him, uh, for yourself. He was pierced through for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The chastening for my well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging I am healed. So if you've never decided to trust Christ, I would encourage you to make that choice tonight. May God open your heart to believe. And you would say something like this to God in the, just in the quietness of your heart. Jesus, I believe you died to pay the price for my sins. You took away my guilt. You bore it on the cross. I believe you rose again from the dead to offer me the gift of life. I trust you. I give you my life. And ask you to teach me how to live from this time on. And if you've put your trust in Christ tonight, then I would love to talk to you about that more fully. So feel free to grab hold of me after, after the service and we can talk about that. If you have questions about that, we can talk about that. So there's the first step of healing, obviously, is to, to uh, accept the atonement for the guilt of our sins. Now, the second thing I want to say about this is as important as that is, it's fundamental, but don't limit the cross of Christ to atonement only. Because what this text is telling us is that it, it includes all of our restoration. Not only the forgiveness of sins, but also healing. Now, I know people get nervous when you talk about healing, so I'll clarify that as I, as I go on. What I'm saying is this, that Christ died not only for our sins, but he bore our griefs and our sorrows to the cross. So the cross is a healing tree. We're healed in the same way that we're saved. And as I recover from my depression, I find that I have to bring all my anxieties and all my fears and all my anger and all my misunderstanding, all my darkness, all my pain, I have to bring that to the cross. And I'm learning to place them there and see them absorbed in the infinite sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He carries them and I am relieved of an unbearable load. So it's wondrous that Christ died to atone for our sins. And it's also wondrous that he died to restore us from all our brokenness. The cross is a healing tree. Now that brings up a question. Is there healing in the atonement? Some people say you should just be able to claim your healing. Christ died for us, you should be able to claim your healing. Is there healing in the atonement? And I, I, you know, I don't understand all of that, but I want to a, uh, answer the question as best I can. Is there healing in the atonement? My answer is yes, in these ways. One, 
Healing from the guilt of sin. We already talked about that. And that's plain. Plain in the gospel. And most of you, again, most of you have, have trusted that. Second, healing from emotional and relational pain, which many of us bear. And third, healing from bodily sickness, sometimes in this life, totally in the life to come. Sometimes God does heal now. Sometimes he says, wait. Sometimes we have to bear the affliction. But in the resurrection, we won't remember. We won't remember. The troubles of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glories which are on the way. So, so what I'm saying is this. Don't limit Christ's cross to atonement only, but expand your understanding to include restoration, to include healing, as I've defined it here. Third thing I want to say this is, in following Christ, don't be shocked to find yourself as a man or woman of sorrows. No student is above his teacher, right? So if Christ came and he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, it's no surprise that we at times will find ourselves in the same boat. So if we're in the fellowship of his suffering, at times we will find ourselves in profound trouble. Struggle, suffering, pain. It might be over our kids, it might be over our marriage, it might be over our finances, it might be over the state of the world, it might be over the government, uh, any number of things. And so don't, don't be surprised when you find yourself in times of profound sorrow. But to balance that out, don't let sorrow have the last word. Because the last word is joy. Jesus came in order to fill up our joy. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be made full. One final clarification, then we'll close. Does all our suffering equate with taking up our cross or is it only suffering specifically for the gospel? I think all our suffering is included. I love the words of Dallas Willard here. He says, irredeemable harm does not befall one who willingly lives in the hand of God. Irredeemable harm does not befall one who willingly lives in the hand of God. What he means is this, no suffering is beyond redemption. In fact, all our suffering is brought together for good, right? Romans 8, 28, God calls us all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose that we might be conformed to the likeness of his son, verse 29. There's one exception. Suffering for wrongdoing. 1 Peter 4, don't suffer as a wrongdoer, but suffer as a Christian. And I suppose even if you suffer as a wrongdoer, if you truly repent and bring that to God, He can use that too. My point is this. God does not waste our sorrows. He enters them and He bears them to the cross and makes them a doorway to hope and joy. It's the greatest surprise in history. Christ's brutal, bloody cross is a tree of healing. Out of the stump comes a tree, a tree of restoration. And the fruit of that tree is wholeness, is shalom in Christ. It all stems from love, the love of God for us. Love bears affliction. Love restores. This is God's heart for you. 
It's hard for me. It's hard for his children. And so as you go through this world, bring your pains, your sufferings, your heartaches to the cross. The man of sorrows suffered there so that he might bear your sins, your pains, your griefs, that you might be restored. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the privilege of gathering as the body of Christ. Uh, we are a people uh, called by you under your name. And we are here to bless you and honor you, to build one another up in our most holy faith, and to bear witness of you in Queens or wherever you may send us. Thank you for putting this body here as a light to the nations. And so many of the nations live right in our neighborhood. So help us to bring this message of love and hope and healing into the world around us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Just going to say real quick, uh, thank you guys for coming out. I have nothing to add to that. Um, I was extremely encouraged um, and, and edified um, by that. Uh, to be able to watch that, uh, to see Romans 8.28 work itself out in, in the life of, of our family has just been a wonderful thing. Truly, God can work a good out of, out of all situations. Um, and I think we're seeing some of that good here tonight. Um, uh, by being able to, to sit and then listen to this sermon. So I've been uh, encouraged. I hope you have too. Um, we're done, but we, we don't want you to leave. Um, please hang out. Let's let fellowship. Um, let's talk. Um, we'll be around here for a while. Um, so thank you guys so much for coming out, and, and you, are, you are dismissed. Yeah.